name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 12. And on the heels of, of what was preached last week by Jeff, of the rich fool who was gathering up all for himself, storing up for himself rather than being rich towards God. And as he thought he had more and more, yet as he focused on self, his life began to shrink and ultimately become meaningless. Now we then look at basically an extension of Jesus' teaching as we make our way from chapter, uh, from verse 12, uh, verse 22 on. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, about what you will eat, about your body, what you'll wear, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Let's stop for a minute, because if we're going to be able to sit in the seat of those hearing Jesus at this time, it would be helpful for us to get a bit of a perspective, and that being that in the first century, this audience would have likely owned two sets of clothing. And that's just the undergarments and only one cloak. So that's all that they would have had. Clothes on your back. I mean, literally, they would have the clothes on their back and maybe one spare. But not only that, but in terms of food, there was no real storage of food. You had bread for a day. And if you had bread for a day, you were excited. It's why when Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And so for this group to have any sort of an abundance or for them to have, you know, our, our issues of, oh, you know what, I think i got to get all the crackers out of the house because I'm snacking way too much. That's just not a first century issue by the furthest stretch of the imagination. As a matter of fact, it's what makes fasting, I think, so much more poignant in Jesus' call for it in the first century. Because if you have a day where you know you have bread and you decide to fast that day, that's a pretty serious sacrifice that you make for the Lord. Because you don't know if, if that's really coming the next day. And often it did. And, and for those who lived for, for God, so he would take care of them. Uh, but again, we're looking at this with canned goods and probably a second freezer in addition to your refrigerator. And really just annoyed because your pantry is just not big enough right now. I mean, our concerns are so far from those of the, this crowd sitting at the, uh, at the feet of Jesus. So don't worry about what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. And as a side note, Jeff and I had said, you know, if, if the ravens win, maybe we should delay this sermon until Super Bowl Sunday. And, and each week, we'll just wait. And every time the Ravens win, we'll just save this sermon. And then, on February 1st, it'll be our Super Bowl Sunday sermon, Consider the Ravens. <laughs> that didn't happen. And I'm preaching the sermon today. Sorry, Ravens fans. By the way, while Raven sounds kind of cool to us, Raven was by no means a cool idea for this crowd. This, this particular bird uh, was a crow in the family of crows. It was an, uh, an animal that Jesus picked that was an unclean animal. And 
ill-respected by, by all that would have encountered the bird. Um, at least respected among the birds, but the amazing thing is, God cares for it. Consider the ravens. It, I'm trying to think of like a parallel. It would almost be like, think of the rats. Not just any, think of the sewer rats. The scavenger sewer rats. Right? They don't sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? And consider how the wildflowers grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you eat or drink. Don't worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom and these things will be given to you as well. And at this point of making the pivot of seeking the kingdom, he now goes on to say, don't be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, let's dive into this. And the overall idea here, of course, is we should not in any way give in to worry. Yeah. We have no reason to worry. But as soon as you hear that, you probably start to think, yeah, but would I be irresponsible if that were the case? Can you jump to the next slide? Now, when I was growing up, the great symbol of not worrying was Mad Magazine, and it was Alfred E. Newman. How many of y'all like even recognize, you know, oh, okay. And even among the teens, who knew? I guess they have a TV show now, right? A mad, mad TV or something. Maybe that's right. what's against it. But, you know, Alfred E. Newman is not our model for not worrying. Why is it that he doesn't worry? Because he's irresponsible. Because he doesn't care about anything. And rather than worrying sticks his head in the sand and just pretends like it's not really an issue. He hit the next one. So let's, let's not kind of have that picture of, of what it means to not worry. But instead, I think the whole idea that you should be asking yourself is what me worry is still a very valid rhetorical question. Because you know what the answer is? No. No, 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 no matter what. It is no. Maybe go to the next slide. This would probably be a bit of a better view. You can hit the next. There we go. <laughs> trying to get as close to Alfred E. Newman as I could. Seemed to do pretty well. 
He was the freckles that really kind of caught the uh, very likeness there. No, but I mean, I mean Marshall obviously is an amazing man of faith, which rails against worry, but he's also one of us, right? Could just as easily be my picture, your picture up there, and likewise asking us the very same thing. What me worry? No, there is no reason to worry whatsoever. And Jesus goes through this passage and brilliantly builds the case for why it is that we should not worry. And he begins with the idea that the stuff that you're worrying about, food, clothing, again, imagine to people that they only have that one set of clothes. That food that they have may only be for that day. When they wake up the next day and they have kids, there's no guarantee that food is going to be on that table. And it's to that crowd that he's able to say to them, your life is so much more than these concerns about what you're going to wear or even what you're going to put in your belly. And for us, maybe we need to look at it as living is more than having. Because our worries are probably not about will there be something in the pantry tomorrow morning when I'm getting kids ready for school. I, I honestly don't think really anybody here has got that grip on their, on their uh, heart wondering, am I going to be able to feed my kids in the morning? And most of our worry comes about from a lot of other issues. And it's normally about possessions, possessions, possessions. And, and, and so the comparison to the first century crowd ought to give us pause as we realize, wow, this is what discipleship looked like for them. But then he goes on and gives us another reason why the answer is what we worry, no way, is the ravens that I mentioned. These crows, these despicable animals that everybody in that crowd would have detested. And here they are being taken care of by God. And how much more does God regard you than he does that unclean bird that annoys you? Um, and the ravens here, by the way, are not set out as an example of freedom from work or of idleness, nor are they said to be, well, and instead, really, what are they? They are a freedom from anxiety. That's what the ravens represent in this picture to us from Jesus. Because the ravens, they're not stressed about the supply chain of worms and where their next worm is going to come from. But on the flip side of it, too, they're also not lounging on the lawn with their beaks open, just allowing the worms to crawl on up and crawl on in. That's not the way that God is trying to say, I'm going to take care of the ravens, so I'm going to take care of you. They still go about their life. They, they still are continuing to, to, to scavenge and, and go after the very things that they need to go after. But as they do so, God blesses their industry and they are taken care of by God. He, he also then gives us this example of, you know, that's the food. Then he hits the clothing part. The, uh, the wildflowers grow and they're dressed in greater splendor than Solomon himself. 
He might have been referring to a, a wildflower that would grow on the hills of Jerusalem called the, uh, the purple anemone. And it, it would look like the same color as royal robes. And after a good rain, because uh, Jerusalem was often very dry, but after a good rain, you would see them spring up. And just as they would spring up like grass, they would also be around for a day, and then they're gone. The minute the scorching sun comes back, the minute that little bit of rain turns to, to parch uh, soil again, off they go, and that often was just a 24-hour life cycle. And if something is fleeting, as a wildflower or the grass of the field is so attended by God with his attention, his concern, well, how much more you? Do you think that God regards you more highly than grass? Honestly. And if the answer is yes, well, then it's another reason for you to recognize, all right, wait a minute. Why am I getting caught up in this cycle that's pulling me down of worrying and worrying and worrying. And this anxiety is, is, is only going to cause a greater and greater downward cycle. And while he uses this classic word for worry as he makes his way through, he then goes on to say, don't set your heart on what you will eat or drink and don't worry about it. Now, he uses another word for worry here. And... The, the first word that, that's used all throughout the, the Bible for worry is, um, is the word that simply just means to, to fret and to obsess uh, to, the, to the point of causing stress in yourself. But now he uses another word in, in this passage where he says, do not worry about it. The pagan world runs after such things. Uh, down in verse 29. That word is a new word for worry, and it's a unique word. I think it's used only here in all of the New Testament. And it's an interesting word. It's meteorizo, where we get the word meteor. And it has this idea of being in tension between something good, something bad. You know, like a meteor seems to hang in the air. Um, likewise, this idea of meteorizo is to hover somewhere between faith and fear. It's, the, it's a picture of someone with anxious emotional insecurity and instability as this person races between various emotions, wanting to have faith, but yet being pulled back into fear again. And, and you notice throughout the passage that the words faith and fear are brought to bear by Jesus too. Because as he says, hey, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And then he says, don't be afraid, little flock, of, of what it is that God wants for your life. And for sure, worry, worry, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of interesting quotes on worry. I, I think it was... Uh, Mounts, who was a New Testament scholar, who has the, the great quote that worry is practical atheism. That put into practice, worry means that you don't really have a God who is intimate to you and in whom you can trust. That's a scary proposition. But worry 
is such a dangerous thing in a disciple's life. It's kind of like a thin stream of thought that continues trickling through your mind as you worry and worry and worry. And left unchecked, this stream cuts a channel through your thinking which all other thoughts are drained into. And you end up making sense of life through fear rather than through faith. And as soon as worry pops up, it cannot be left unchecked. It has to be greeted with faith. It has to be greeted with prayer. We have to go from worry, which looks around, to faith, which looks up. And whatever the issue that is presenting itself to us, no matter how great or how small, if it is greeted with worry in our heart, it needs to be quickly redirected from looking around to really looking up to Jesus. Can you, can you jump to the next slide? This, this meteorizo idea of worry is this idea of feeling like you're, you're caught between two directions that you want to go. Again, you want to be faithful, but oftentimes you're fearful. But here, here is what often is the case when we get the charge scripturally to not worry. Those of us who are maybe, let's say, married may have one spouse who is, let's say, a bit... Is that me? Okay, see. Let's say in, in, in a, uh, a prototypical marriage, one spouse is a bit more, oh, let's say, ADD, and another spouse is a bit more OCD. In our marriage, you can just guess which way that goes. But that kind of makes it a bit easier for the, let's say, uh, distracted spouse to be like, yeah, yeah, worry, no big deal. But, you know, life is carefree. You know, move on, move on with our lives. And then, it's not good for the mic here for all. But then that's leaving the other spouse to say, my goodness, do you not see what's, what I see and what's going on? And, and the other spouse then feels as though he or perhaps she needs to be the responsible party. And, and it's, it's not that you want to worry, but somebody's got to be concerned about this. And when one of us unfairly neglects the issues, well, then it doubles up the pile on the other, and it really does promote unfortunately, the opportunity to worry because we're not pulling our own fair share of focus and concern of things that are going on in our lives. And so that's an important thing, I think, in all of our marriages uh, to make sure that we're being clear on that. But, you know, you, you, you could be thinking, well, you know, yeah, to, to, to not worry, well, maybe that's just what slackers do. That's the Alfred E. Newman approach. That's stick your head in the sand. Pretend it isn't there, rather than look up and realize that, you know what, the sky really is falling. But, but here's the case. No matter what is going to happen to us, worry cannot do a thing about it. It, it doesn't empty 
yesterday of its sorrows. It doesn't empty tomorrow of its dangers. All it empties is today of its joy and its possibilities. And we are undermining the very gift of creativity that God has given us in making us in His image. One of the great things that we have being the Imago Dei, fancy way of saying the image of God, is that we have creative imagination. We can imagine all sorts of possibilities. But God forbid we take this Imago Dei, this gift of being made in the image of God, and direct it towards worry. How sad that must make God, how that must make Jesus. That He gives us possibility thinking. And, and all we do is turn it into a reason to fret. Now I love what Mark Twain said. At the end of his life he said, I'm an old man. I've known a great many troubles. But most of them never happened. And that is really what worry sets us up for. Yeah. Sets us up for, for fretting about things that, that never happen. But even if the worst of it all does happen, even if you lose the gig, you lose the girl, you lose the job, you lose the house, you lose the health, even if you lose all of those things, you, believe it or not, are not going to be wrecked. How do I know? Ask anybody who it's happened to. They've come through it. You've got a lot of people in our fellowship right now where that and more so, or all of that in some cases, and more so, have happened to them. And they're still standing. And in many cases, we'll tell you, wow, better for it. Imagine that. Had dear friends inflicted with MS coming away. I mean, I think of like something you would so dread. I don't know if I'm doing something odd here. This is held together by duct tape, so. Is this still on? Let me switch just in case. Can you hear me? Um, I've had friends, dear friends, that have uh, contracted uh, MS, multiple sclerosis. Uh, one, one in a wheelchair, never, never really to come out. Um, another young mother. But you know what? As you, as you would talk to both of them, neither of them, neither of them is said, oh, I am ruined. I am ruined. Yeah, right. As a matter of fact, Tom, Tom Jones... Uh, who's, who's a bit older, says that it actually gave him a perspective that has so enriched his relationship to God. Wow. Steve Brown, another dear friend of mine, also with MS, lost his job, lost everything in the process, has bounced back, bounced back remarkably. And here's what he says, is that before MS, my strength was my strength. 
after MS, my strength is my God. And I would not change it. Now, maybe I'd like to learn the lesson without it. Sure. But, given what has happened, I'll take it. You have a God who is your Father, Jesus says. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has got you. Imagine you walking with your, your little child. And your, and your little child, every day, worrying. Are we going to have anything to eat? Will we have anything for lunch? And then dinner comes. Are we going to have anything for dinner? Mom, will we have anything for dinner? And at some point, you're going to be like, oh, do you not like get our relationship here? I'm your mom. I got this. I'm good at this. This is covered in your life. You don't have to keep asking this. As a matter of fact, if this goes on tomorrow, I'm going to start to wonder if you even understand our relationship. And imagine if it continued in that way. I think you'd be rather perplexed that your child couldn't get that you've got them. You love them. And it's your delight to be able to take care of them. Now the hard part for us is that what God really gives us is a glorious kingdom. A glorious kingdom that transcends the smallness of understanding that we have in this current age. And the bounty and the beauty that awaits us is all going to be realized through faith. And at the end of this, what he calls us to do is to seek his kingdom. If you want to have a perspective on all of this, he says, and you don't want to be ensnared with the downward spiral, the poisoning of yourself through worry. Well, the way that you can end that stream of poison is to stop seeking this. Stop seeking stuff. And instead, seek His kingdom. It's where your purses will not wear out. The treasure will never fail. You know, God notices how you use your bank account. And at death, that account does not close. If anything, it becomes all the more remarkable. And if you have, through this experience, invested for the kingdom of God rather than for the kingdom of self, if you've been able to live your life for others rather than in smallness for self, like the, the rich fool that preceded this story, well then, you're going to be pleasantly surprised in the age to come. And you're going to be probably blown away that little selfless acts are suddenly brought home in magnitude in the age to come. And it's what Jesus then calls us to. You want to break this cycle of small thinking and inward focus, introspection that takes you nowhere? A life of worry. Uh, one one uh, author wrote, worry is like a rocking chair. Gives you something to do, but you don't get very far. But if you want to break that cycle, then get some perspective. And behold 
the kingdom that God has presented to you. A kingdom in which His will is done. A kingdom in which He is sovereign. A kingdom in which values are upside down. A kingdom in which giving is finally recognized for being the greatest value rather than keeping or getting. So he says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourself that are going to return an investment in eternity that will astound you. He doesn't say sell all your possessions and give to the poor, but he does say, why don't you rearrange what you've got and give rather than keep? Now, I love that we're able to support churches in India every year. And, of course, Sri Lanka is part of that. I remember uh, one year when I, I was a single, uh, living in a single's household. And we, um, we were trying to figure out how we could raise the money for giving this money to the uh, kind of our, our poor friends over in India. And, you know, we decided, why don't we just sell anything that could get us any kind of money? So we sold a TV, sold a stereo, sold all kinds of stuff like that. And, you know, in the process of it, there was not a moment of worry. There was not a moment of sadness or sorrow. It was probably one of the high points of my life living with, with, with those guys and going for it for the kingdom of God. And I remember even, you know, as people called back then, you had to like put ads in a paper, by the way, to sell stuff. Um, but, you know, they would call and, you know, we brought the TV over. We sell it. to They're like, why are you selling this TV? It's nice. We're like, you know what? Because we're trying to raise money and give it to a mission that's going on in India. And they're all like, whoa, really? You know, and they're calling all over. Listen to what these guys are doing. They're doing, you know, we're sharing our faith, telling about Jesus everywhere we go. And, you know, we were just like, woohoo, how much cooler could life be? This is really living. Rather than just making life about me, the more that life is about others and contributing, the greater life is. And, and it was as though we could taste the kingdom of God. Yeah. Like a little foretaste of, wow, I even have goosebumps now, uh, thinking through it, of, wow, this is what it means to really be living for, for Jesus, for the sake of others, as Jesus did. But it's very difficult to maintain that focus, of course. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice the order of that. Where your treasure is, your heart will be. Implying that your heart's not already there. Yeah. So if you want your heart to be more in the here and now, rather than the kingdom, well then, you know what? Drain all of your financial resources into yourself, into another sweet set of sneakers or coat or whatever it might be that you've got your eye on right now. Go ahead, do it. And at the end of that, if you've got the new sneakers, you got the sweet new coat, at the end of that, give yourself a little heart test. Say, wow, do I feel naturally more drawn to Jesus and his kingdom? Is that what these sneakers are doing for me? Is that what this sweet new overcoat is doing for me? I doubt that that will be the result. And, and you may be saying to yourself, well, I do want to kind of put my heart into the kingdom, but my heart's not there. But once my heart is there, then watch my smoke. Oh man, I'll be, 
I'll be doing stuff. I'll be, I'll be coming to Bible talk more frequently. I'll be telling people about the events and asking people to study the Bible. I'll be trying to contribute more to what we're doing to be able to build uh, the, the, the outreach of the gospel in Hampton Roads. Man, once my heart is there. But I don't want to do it until my heart's there. You know why? Because I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to do it if my heart's not in it. That is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, wait till your heart gets there and then invest. He's saying, I know your heart's not there. Fair enough. It's not there. But if you'd like it to be there, and you'd like to have sincerity with the way you live your life and the way your heart ought to be, it's not by waiting around until the lightning bolt suddenly changes where your heart is. The way to get there is to invest in the right place. And when you begin to invest in the kingdom of God, guess what will happen? Your heart will follow. That's the principle being laid out by Jesus. And I love that. It's a very simple prescription. And by the way, it's borne itself out every single time that I can recount in my life. And even in simple things. So, we're, we're going to have Super Bowl parties. And not that I condone betting, but let's just say you put a little dollar pool together, right? And let's just say the two teams that make it to the Super Bowl are, oh, the New England Patriots and the Seattle Seahawks. Right? Just taking the top seat. So it's not trying to say anything else. And let's say Bruce and Joanne care nothing for either of those teams. And they watch the game and they think, you know what? I'm glad we have everybody over our house. It's fun having this gathering. But you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, eh, with this game. But you put a little pool together and Bruce and Joanne put a dollar, between the two of them, put a dollar down on Seattle and watch them lose their mind every time Seattle does something good. And you know they can. But without that dollar, it's going to be a quiet house at the Dick's place. But with that dollar, bring some earplugs. It's a small investment, but look at how your heart does really follow. And if a simple worldly example like that rings true all the time for us. You know, I have, I have the kind of the classic one. For, for 10 years working for Coca-Cola, I had a 401k and I put all of my, my uh, uh, retirement uh, savings into Coca-Cola stock. And guess what I did every day for those 10 years when the New York Times arrived at my desk? I turned to the back of it, opened up three pages in, rolled down New York Stock Exchange, the stock symbol ticker for Coca-Cola was KO, went down, KO, looked at that. I mean, before I looked at how the Yankees were doing, before I looked at how the Giants were doing, before I cared about any kind of world events, no matter how big and crazy they were. And, you know, this was the time where the Berlin Wall fell, apartheid was what was eliminated, uh, where Tiananmen Square went. I mean, big events during all of this. Yeah, 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 that's nice. Let me get to the back page. <laughs> And I looked at KO, and if it went up a tick, whoa! If it went down, oh my. Why? Because I had invested, and guess where my heart was? Now, 
A few years later, I go into the ministry. I had no money. I did something really stupid. I liquidated my 401k. Don't ever do that. Um, but I, I had no money. And, 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 but I needed to do it. And, and I looked, But guess what? The moment that I sold all that Coca-Cola stock in, in June of 1996, guess when the last time I turned to the New York Times, went down to New York Stock Exchange, and looked at KO? Right. June of 1996. I still have not. And you know, Jeff was like, well, you can't do it now because you can't use it as a preaching illustration anymore. But it's not that even. I just, I just don't care. I really don't. I don't care one way or another how that stock is doing. My heart is not there. But that's a scary principle. Because if you divest, so likewise, you can remove your heart. So here's my simple encouragement. If you want to break the mess of the worry, Jesus says there's one prescription. It's to have a bigger concern, a bigger yes, a bigger experience. What is that experience? The kingdom of God. Can you turn to the next slide? And so as Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Here's my challenge this week. Invest in the kingdom. How can you do that? Well, you can perhaps pray through everyone in your Bible talk. You could ask your Bible talk leader, how can I make this week's Bible talk all the more glorious? You could actually contribute financially towards the work of the kingdom. You pick it. I don't know how that investment occurs, but it's either your resources, your emotions, your energy, your time, whatever it is. You, you, you decide to you know, go and visit somebody, see how they're doing. You, you pick it. But whatever it is that you invest in, I want you also to then do a heart check and say, do I care more about the people in my Bible talk this week? Is my heart more naturally in it? And I would bet, unless Jesus is way off here, that your heart's going to be where you want your heart to be. You wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't want your heart to be all in for the kingdom of God. And if that's what you really want, well, Jesus gives you a very easy way on how to get it there. Put your heart there by investing there first. Invest. Invest with your energy. Invest with your time. Invest with your, your resources. Invest. Give to the kingdom of God. Whether that's trying to evangelize, trying to help people know Jesus. I, I think even as you kind of seek first the kingdom, it, it would be trying to do whatever it takes to rearrange your schedule to really allow you to get right with Jesus. Any of that that you do, you will not come away saying, nah, that was kind of an anemic experience. It will not be. It will always be, wow, Jesus is right. How my heart has blossomed, how encouraged I am. And here's the beauty of it. It's a self-reinforcing cycle. Not a downward spiral, but a continuous improvement loop. Where every time we do, then suddenly we're all the more enthused for the next investment and the next blossoming of our heart. And think of that, of everybody here. Blossoming. Blossoming towards a heart for the kingdom of God. What it is that the peninsula is blessed with. With all these disciples, suddenly all the more enthralled for Jesus and His kingdom and what it is that we will do. Amen. Thank you. Amen.